This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Dave Leary Show. Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexual content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. We're good. Oh, we're recording? Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. We are good. <laughs> He started just before he left. I so. was like, oh, right. Yeah, but it's okay. He just because he's recording, there's no video. We can sit here and stare at each other if you want to. Okay, yeah. that, that seems. <laughs> <laughs> we could do that. That actually <laughs> reminds me of the first time I saw you. Yeah. Where it was just like staring at each other. More, you were staring at me because I was staring at you. I think. Yeah. I think so. I take full responsibility. It was all good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, my name is Taylor. I'm 29. I'm Cree. I'm originally from Kihuan, Alberta. Where? Uh, Kihuan. Kihuan. It's six and a half hours north. It's um, not sure if you know where Lloydminster is, but it's about an hour out of there. Okay. Uh, very small town. Um, you know, from a young age in small town Alberta, you're kind of exposed to a lot of things. Mm right out the gate, right? Um, So for me, growing up in that town, there was a lot of teenage pregnancy. Uh, There was a lot of meth use. Mm. And I remember that when I was like 14, 15. Um, At that point in time, I hadn't really gotten into experimenting with anything. I just knew that my friends were starting to phase into that part of their life. Mm. Um, And... Uh, right around that time, my mom actually packed us up and we all moved to St. Albert. Um, shortly after moving to St. Albert, my grandfather passed away. Um, we stayed in St. Albert and like my grandfather was a, my Muslim was a really big rock in my life, like a really big person in my life. Um, so his death really shocked me. Um, you know, and then that brings up the abandonment issues and looking back on it. Now I see it that that was abandonment issues because it was somebody in my life that I held so dear just gone like that. Mm. Um, so we were in St. Albert and I don't know if you've ever been to St. Albert, but it's very hard to make friends being a native. Mm. Um, I was bullied a lot in St. Albert. Um, a lot of girls wouldn't want to be friends with me. They didn't want to be friends with me. It was really hard for me to even 
get people to eat lunch with me. Like it was like I was a disease to them. Mm. Um, and you know, it was, it wasn't only my skin. It was the fact that my parents weren't rich and in St. Albert, they're spoon fed their whole life. Right. Mm. Like they don't understand anything outside of that little bubble. Um, so living in St. Albert and being that young and not having any exposure to anything besides seeing my friends um, talk about going to party or use um, and then going to St. Albert and just it was a complete change like they were my age but these girls were dressing like they were older and it was really hard for me because I was very conservative and mm. I didn't want I didn't like showing my body I didn't mm. see any purpose in that um, but I could tell that those girls were so used to that um, and it, I would get bullied for like being native not being rich and my weight I drop. I got dropped off at school one day and it was the winter so my dad put uh, cardboard over the front of the van so that mm -hmm. the, the cooler didn't the get cooler in. The cooler didn't get in, yeah. yeah. And instantly, as soon as I got dropped off, people were talking, oh, she got dropped off in that van. Did you see that van? It's got cardboard on the front and all this other stuff, and it mm -hmm. made me feel really bad. Um, so that whole year in St. Albert, grade 9 in St. Albert, uh, I was just hoping that somebody would pay attention to me and somebody would just accept me. Mm -hmm. um, I went that whole school year not really liking anybody. My grade nine prom, I came home crying because again, I didn't have any friends. And I kept asking my mom, why are we still here? Like, I don't like this place. And we, they, my parents made the decision to keep us in the city, right? So we stayed in St. Albert. Um, and then when I went into grade 10 in St. Albert, um, I started to smoke weed and I started to hang out with older kids because those older kids, oh, they'll eat lunch with me. Oh, they'll invite me to go for smokes. Oh, they'll invite me to go to parties. They'll invite me to go drink. It was just, I was included mm. by these older kids. And I was able to, well find friends essentially but I lost myself in the process right because I went from being that conservative girl to wearing mini skirts and just really provocative clothing um, and going to parties and drinking and letting older guys use me mm -hmm. just so that I could have friends somebody that I could talk to um, you know that loneliness gets hard um, so after uh, hanging out with these friends for a little bit more and starting to party with them, my mom started to see that I was going out and drinking and I was going out to these neighborhoods in like the outskirts of St. Albert where it was all these rich kids and these rich kids were known to beat up kids at these parties. Mm -hmm. So my mom was really worried. <clears throat> um, and then she was like, we can't, can't do this anymore and I was like I can't do this anymore either I don't like this place I haven't liked this place 
I need to leave. And um, so she agreed to let me move to my uncle's in Kihiwan, where I'm from. And they were just going to move with us a couple months later, whenever they could get everything sorted out. Um, so I moved there. And because I had already been exposed to drinking and partying in St. Albert, moving back to my reserve with those newfound talents, I guess you could call them. <laughs> um, I slipped so fast into that lifestyle. Um, I was going to school at BCHS uh, in grade 10, and I wanted to drop out to go be an esthetician because you only needed grade 10 uh, English. And I had my grade 10 English, so I was like, whatever, I'm going to drop out, go be an esthetician, start taking care of myself so that I'm not a financial drain on my mom anymore and I'm not a financial drain on, like, I I had put the government in the letter, right? Like, I didn't want to be another, like, social statistic, basically, right? Like, claiming welfare. Um, And so I wrote this letter and I gave it to my principal at BCHS and I was going to leave that day after school. And they called me into the office and my principal was there, my English teacher was there, and my mom was there. And they all had this letter in front of them and they're like, why are you trying to drop out? Like, you look, do you see the way you write? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I just don't want to be a financial burden on my parents anymore, especially because it was like getting really tough and my dad was um, going to U of A for school. He's uh, a teacher. Um, so I could sense that I was putting a lot of financial strain on my parents and I didn't want to do that anymore. Mm. Um, so instead of allowing me to drop out, they suggested that I went that I go to an off-campus school, like an at-your-own-pace. Mm, okay. Um, so I finished two and a half grades in six months of the at-your-own-pace and everything because I just wanted to get out. I just wanted to get out of there. Um, I knew that... I didn't like being in school. Mm. Um, So after I graduated, I was going to get into social work. But when I went to go and apply, they have a maturity age of 19 to apply for the program. Mm. Well, at the time, they had that maturity age. I haven't looked into it yet. But um, I looked into it, and you had to be 19. So I was like, well, I'm 16. Well, I'll give it three years. I'll see... I'll wait for three years and then I'll go apply and I'll be a social worker. Um, shortly after that, I got my first boyfriend. Uh, he was from the reserve. And I remember just partying there all the time. And then I broke up with that boyfriend and I moved to another boyfriend and I drank and I partied with him. And then when I got bored of him, I broke up with him, moved to the next one, and I did that for quite a bit while I was in Kihuan. Like, I just bounced around from relationship to relationship, mm. knowing full well I had a home that I could go to. But because I was allowed to party and I was allowed to drink and these guys thought I was pretty, you know, I, I stayed there. Mm. And I allowed all of my potential to just escape for me. I didn't, um, I don't really remember a time when I was drinking that I had fun. Mm. For me, it was always, as soon as I drank, I'm crying or I'm angry 
or I'm trying to take off or I'm stealing cars. Mm-hmm. And for as long as I can remember, I've always been that kind of drunk. So it's no, it's no wonder I jumped from a relationship to a relationship and they were so eager to let me go, I guess. Well, <laughs> she's draining my bank account. She's not very nice. All she fucking does is drink and sleep. It's like She's not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I kept doing that. And when I was seventeen, um, I made the jump from weed to ecstasy. And I was a really, really big fan of ecstasy when it first came out, and when I first started doing it. But mm. then. Like with any addiction, right? You get that first one and you want more. You're chasing that same high that you get, Mm -hmm. that giddy feeling in your stomach. I'm like, how many, you know, tabs do I have to take to get that feeling again? Mm -hmm. And then as it started to progress, um, I I couldn't see the unmanageability of it then, but I see it now. And just... Three months of my life, you know, I remember three months where it was ecstasy for three days, sleep for one. Ecstasy for three days, sleep for one. I never ate. I I don't remember really using the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up losing like 60 pounds. Yeah. And uh, my mom remembers seeing me and she's like, what the hell is happening? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I just, I used the whole, well, I'm losing weight because, you know, I want to start taking care of my body. I want guys to start noticing me in mm-hmm. a better way. Um, I just want to lose weight. I played it off like that, knowing full well. It was because I wasn't eating, because I couldn't eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, after kind of bouncing around and going from relationship to relationship on the reserve, I started to party a little bit more in town. Mm-hmm. Um, so the town that I grew up in is Bonneville. It's like 20 minutes away from the reserve I'm registered to. And um, I went into that town and, you know, I was like coming fresh off my binge so I lost all that weight and I started to go out to the bars and the guys at the bars started to pay attention to me and the rig pigs started to pay attention to me um and then I just carried on that life you know never ever having a stable job never having a stable income I would work two weeks get paid and go spend it all that same night right um buy myself a big purse or something that I didn't need and just go drink the rest of it away. Um, When I was 19, um, I went out to the bar and I met um, my baby's father. Uh, He had come down from PEI to work with Seismic. So that was when like the oil boom was really big. Mm -hmm. Um, He came and he was doing Seismic and Shortly after, I think it was like two, two and a half months of us dating, I was knocked up. Mm. And um, I had had miscarriages before, so I was really scared of, you know, having another baby and knowing 
that I can't carry full term, right? Mm. Um, so I uh, went to the Lois Hole Hospital. It's a really good hospital for women. It's amazing. Mm. Um, I went there and I had to get surgery. Um, basically just stitched me up so that I wouldn't miscarry. Mm. So my entire pregnancy was high risk. Um, I was on bed rest. But um, October 22nd, 2012, I gave birth to a little boy. Um, his name is Ezio Arthur Espino. It was... It was really amazing. Like, mm-hmm. it was so surreal. Because after having miscarriages and then finally getting my baby, I was like, oh, this is what it was supposed to feel like. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is... This is magical. I think mm-hmm. everybody should experience this. You know, it's just so beautiful. Um, and like I had quit uh, doing drugs, drinking, smoking, even while I was pregnant. Um, and up until two months after he was born. Um, and then like it just, it came back so fast. Mm-hmm. Like it always does, right? Every yeah. time you pick up, it's exactly where you were. And you're sitting there and you're wondering, how the hell did I get here? Mm-hmm. Um, I moved back to St. Albert because my uh, Etio's dad at the time was working up north in camp. So I thought moving to the city would be closer. And then on his days off, he wouldn't have to travel the extra six hours and mm-hmm. he could just come see us at home in the city um and we were staying with my aunt and my aunt would go to work and me and baby would be at home and spend all our time together and it was really i really miss those days Mm. um on february 9th 2013 my son passed away oh i'm so sorry I woke up in the morning and he wasn't moving Um, and I everything just my entire world came crashing down Mm -hmm. in a matter of hours in a matter of seconds knowing something was wrong initially and everything just happened so fast you know the paramedics showing up and taking us to the hospital and then the doctor coming and telling me that my son hasn't had a heartbeat for an hour and that he's gone and it was like time stopped there Mm. and I just completely froze and I hated it I hate I still to this day I still hate it every decision that I made like and that's where you get into that morbid reflection right Mm -hmm. all of the what-ifs you know I'm sure that anybody who's lost somebody close to them or you know maybe other parents that are going through losing a child like that there's so much blame and so much guilt Mm. that takes serious work to get over right like Mm -hmm. I'm 
that's seven years ago and I'm finally just starting to be able to say his name and not break down in mm-hmm. tears and to talk about him in a way that's yeah. remembering him and not everything that mm-hmm. went wrong, right? Um, well, it's beautiful the way you talk about him. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so shortly after that, um, we we had the funeral and um, my baby's dad uh, wanted to go back to work and then at the time I was just so angry you know how do you how can you leave me right now mm. how can you just pack up your stuff and decide you want to go back to work we just buried our son mm. but you know something that recovery taught me was to look at how other people cope and how other people deal with things right mm. like for him that might have been the only thing that he knew how to do that was the only way he could get out of his own head was mm. to go back to work where I just I shut down completely especially after he left because I felt like I I needed that I needed somebody to comfort me and be with me um, so he went to work and when the contract finished and he was done working up north and he came back down and we were staying in St. Albert for a while and then we moved back up to Bonneville and um, we were trying to figure out what to do next like we don't really we didn't really know mm-hmm. what to do we lost our whole world right everything that we were working for is gone mm-hmm. So he decided that he wanted to go back to school. So, you know, I was like, yeah, sure, let's do whatever you need to do. Um, The thing with the curriculums across Canada, though, whatever, what's a requirement to graduate in Alberta isn't a requirement in PEI. Mm -hmm. So in order for him to get into school here, he would have had to do some upgrading. Mm Um, but if we had just moved to PEI, he could get into school anywhere because he already had all the stuff, the pre-requirements. Yeah. Yeah. So we packed up all of my stuff, my entire house and put it in a U-Haul, bought a little rusted out farm Chevy and we drove all the way to PEI from Bonneville. It took us seven days. Wow. Uh, we lost a tire in <laughs> Sault Ste. Marie, so that was a delay. <laughs> And then we got stuck in a storm in Montreal, and it was just, took a little while to haul that big trailer mm. across the country. <laughs> um, so we get there, and it was like, I fell in love with it instantly. It was so beautiful there, um, just to go anywhere you wanted and still see the ocean. Mm-hmm. And um, so I tried to get a job as soon as we got there, but... Uh, PEI is a very seasonal place so you work all the summer and then you sit around on EI for the winter so by the time we had gotten there there was no summer jobs available Mm -hmm. so I didn't work and I was still on EI and then um, we moved to the other end of the city Montague and I worked at a call center there uh, inbound call center and I made some really like lasting friendships there like I knew that they were real friendships right Mm -hmm. like not the kinds that I had been exposed to before these were genuine people and that was the first time I'd ever experienced Mm -hmm. that right because like 
mostly it's, well, they only want to hang out with me because I have money or because I can drive them somewhere mm-hmm. because I have drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really refreshing to go there and be accepted. Yeah. Um, and shortly after moving to PEI, I realized that people there really like to drink and really like to party. So I was like, I'm going to have a grand old time here. And so I started to drink and I started to drink a lot. And it was, it was becoming problematic. I could see that it was becoming problematic, but I didn't think it was a problem because my bills were still being paid. I was still paying for my rent. I was still showing up for work. Um, you know, I was still taking care of both of us while he was in school. So in that sense, I justified it. Um, and then when he was done school, we were going to move to another part of the city. We moved to or another part of the island, and we moved to the other part of the island in Summerside. And that's when I really started to drink, and it was becoming every day pretty much. Every day I'd have five or six drinks to myself. I'd catch a little buzz, and I'd pass out. Depending on the night, I'd catch a little buzz and try to keep catching a bigger buzz, you know. And 15 beers later, I'm blacked out and I don't know what the hell's going on. Um, so, I lived in PEI and when we moved out to PEI, I stopped uh, doing like cocaine. Because I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't hide that. There was yeah. no way I could hide that. And then towards the end of us living in PEI, I would sneak off and <laughs> just by chance, just that's that's how it works, right? When you're at the bar, somebody yeah. approaches you, suddenly you have mm-hmm. a hookup. And it was, I was just hiding it from him. And I would take off and I would go to Halifax and I'd make some dumb excuse like, oh, I'm going to visit my aunt. And really, I'd just be going to party because mm. that was the only way that I knew I could get rid of those feelings. Mm. Um, people, like how people will cope in different ways in mine because I wasn't getting that release or that chance to talk about him in a healthy way or talk about my son in a way that would allow me to grieve properly. Um, I didn't get that. So a lot of the time, I just kept everything in. And I was ridiculed a lot for mourning the loss of my son. Mm. And... Like, looking back on it now, yeah, that's, that's kind of abusive, Taylor, you know? But mm-hmm. I just... I was so in love. Or I thought I was so mm-hmm. in love. That I thought he could just fix all my problems and he could take it all away. Yeah. But if anything, he just contributed to my problems. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's always the way when we think the per- the partner's going to be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're in PEI and sneaking around and drinking and I'm just 
spending money I don't have on liquor all the time and starting to neglect myself. Like I was, I got really, really heavy out there, like heavier than I was when I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I just completely let myself go. I didn't care. I was so depressed and Mm -hmm. just trying to find a way to ease it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, like, yeah, I turned to alcohol because that was the only way I knew how to forget. Mm-hmm. But then seven beers in and I'm remembering and it's hard and it's harsh and I'm crying and I'm trying to run away. And mm-hmm. um, So after he finished school in PEI, um, we couldn't, he couldn't find anything that would pay him Alberta money out in PEI. So I was like, okay, well, let's go back to Alberta. So we came back to Alberta. um, And within the first week of being back, I, like, we had gotten into so many fights just in the one week we had been there. And he was giving me the silent treatment. And I was just, I had had it. I was like, I'm... I'm trying my hardest here and I'm not being met with anything so I don't care anymore and I was going out a lot I was going out and drinking and I ended up uh, cheating on him one night and I came home and I told him and he packed all of his stuff and he left um, and for me I was like holy shit this is what freedom tastes like hmm. so I was like I'm going to go out. I'm going to have a grand old time because I couldn't before. It's not like I couldn't before, but you know, in my mindset, I was oh, I know like, what you mean. I couldn't do anything. He didn't let me do anything. <laughs> I I'm know what you out. mean. Yeah. That freedom is a good freedom. Right? Yeah. So we think. So we think. <laughs> and, um, so I'm living in Bonneville and I'm drinking like all the time and I'm, right back in there with my old friends and a couple of family members that, you know, are in active addiction mm-hmm. still. Um, but it was, I was right in there like a dirty shirt, right? Like I just mm-hmm. fit right in. I felt so welcomed and people were so glad that I was back and, mm-hmm. oh, how come you're out now? And I'm like, well, I broke up with, you know, and... They're like, oh, you're free. And I'm like, yes, I am. (laughs) So I'm living in Bonneville and I'm working at the C2 and I'm still drinking. And that was when the World Juniors were going on. So I'm working there and I'm drinking and I'm getting people to cover my shifts. And I'm coming in hungover and I'm coming in, coming down. And I'm like, you know, trying to work in a hot, busy kitchen while I'm like shaking, going through withdrawals, right? Um. But it was it was only for that period of the World Juniors that they needed an extra hand. So it wasn't like it was permanent that I mm-hmm. had to work there. Um, it was just for the duration. Uh, after that, me, my sister, and her girlfriend, we moved to Red Deer. And there, my sister started to see my addiction firsthand. Mm-hmm. And started to see how much I drank. And, you know, just see that that was a problem, right? And 
we were sitting there having dinner and I was drinking with my dinner because it's always a good time to drink, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and she starts crying and she starts telling me, I just wish you'd stop drinking, you know. And I started crying too and I was like, yes, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I don't want you to go through this anymore. And, you know, my little sister is like my rock. Like she's... When we were younger, I didn't appreciate the relationship. But now that I'm older, like I love having a little sister, you know, like a best friend, right? And like sure, she can piss me off and she has her own attitude as I'm sure I do. But at the end of the day, like, if I'm in trouble, there's nobody else I'm going to call except her, right? And um, a lot of the times when I was suicidal or I would get really close to committing suicide, I would always stop and I would always think, what is she going to do if you fuck off now? Mm-hmm. What What's her life going to be like? Because when I moved to PEI and I came back... Um, there was some self-harm going on. Mm. So I blamed myself for that. And Mm. it's like I failed to protect her. Mm. So when I would get suicidal, it's who's going to protect her? Who's going to help her? Who's going to save her? Who's going to be there for her? Um, And so it would stop me because I'm not about to leave her, right? Mm. so we're living in Red Deer, and three days after she breaks down crying to me, I'm drinking again. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling her, oh, well, I'll just have six. I won't take it too far tonight. Like, I'm just going to drink a little bit. I'm not going to drink a lot. And you could tell that it bugged her, but she didn't know how to address mm-hmm. it. She didn't know how to say anything because, like, I'm so quick to jump the gun, right? I was so quick to jump the gun that if she would have said something, I would have snapped right back at her, right? So I can see where she would be coming from, where she would be scared to confront me about things that actually worry her, right? Um, Especially because when I was, like, growing up, when my mom and dad would tell me, no, I'd leave, I'd Mm -hmm. run away. I'm like, you can't tell me what to do, and I'd take off. So I understand why it was so hard to address that or why they were kind of timid of it. Um, So needless to say, Red Deer didn't work out. Um, We moved there at the wrong time, and there was just not a whole lot of employment. Mm -hmm. So we were there for three months, and then we moved back to Bonneville. And when we moved back to Bonneville, I moved in with um, my uncle and his girlfriend and my little sister and her girlfriend, moved to Cold Lake, so I didn't really have any contact with them a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just completely went off the rails. I had two jobs, and I was making decent amount Mm -hmm. of money, and my rent was cheap. It was 700 bucks. I had a basement suite and big old backyard for my dog. Like, it was great, but... Every day I was drinking. Mm. Every day I would come home after work and I would have like three beer, fall asleep, wake up, go to work, do it all over again. But because I had the two jobs, I would start at the restaurant at 10 a.m. And I'd get done about 2 or 3. And then I'd drive over to the liquor store 
and I worked there. So I worked at the restaurant and I worked at the liquor store and I'd work from whatever time I got off at the restaurant till the time the liquor store closed. And then I'd use my handy dandy discount and I'd buy my liquor and mm -hmm. I'd go home and drink it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I only had Saturdays off. Like that was the only day a week I had off and Fridays I was working till 1am. So Friday night, I would use my discount, get my liquor for the weekend, and call Buddy. And that was just my routine. Mm. And I got a boyfriend at the time. I got a new boyfriend. Um, and it was a toxic relationship mm. from the start. But, um, you know, I was very selfish in that sense that I just, I was manipulating the entire situation mm -hmm. because I knew he had money. And if I could get him to pay for the drugs sometimes, then we could do drugs all the times. Mm -hmm. And it just got worse and worse and worse to the point where I was asking my mom, oh, I need to borrow $300 because I'm not going to make my rent. But I wasn't telling her that it was for my rent. I was telling I was telling her any bullshit excuse mm -hmm. I could come up with, anything other than the truth, right? Whereas I'm pretty sure if I would have just said, hey, I need $300, got to buy some drugs, she would have been like, I think you need rehab. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good reason why we don't tell the truth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much shame <laughs> so much yeah um so we did that and uh one day one of my friends sent me a text and it was a picture of him with another girl out shopping and i was like shoot first ask questions later so i went out and i got extremely drunk i missed work the next day and I received a warning. And then um, I explained to my boyfriend at the time what, what was going on. Um, and he got like mad at me again. And I was like, whatever, this. And I went and I drank. And I just showed up to work the next day. And you could smell the liquor on my breath. And then they pulled me into the office and there was a letter saying that the next time I came into work drunk or high, I was fired. Mm. And I was like, you're not going to fire me. I quit. So I left. Mm -hmm. I packed up all of my stuff. I put most of it in storage. And I took me and my dog and got in my little Saturn Ion and I drove from Bonneville to Calgary coming down, hungover. Mm not knowing what to do and I was like mom I need to come stay at your house like I'm having a hard time hmm. dealing with my addiction and I started to use that as an excuse at the end right like hmm. oh it's because I have this addiction that I'm such a mean person or that I'm inconsiderate and I'm selfish mm -hmm. and even though I didn't want to stop drinking, I knew that that was the only way to get my mom off my back, essentially, mm -hmm. was to just start telling her, you know what, I don't like it, but secretly doing it. Mm 
so I moved down here and I was I think I got like 36 days 35 36 days in and I was asked to go out with my friends so I went out and I was like I'm just gonna sober drive so I did that and we went out to music that bar downtown and within two hours of me being there I had a Stella in my hand and I was drinking it mm. and I was like well, we had a good run, <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, my boyfriend called me, and he was like, where are you? And he was, like, super upset, and he was like, you need to go home. And I was so mad. I was like, you're not even here, and you're telling me how to live my life. Mm-hmm. And um, we, like, we, we obviously didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um and I started to, it was like every day pretty much that I started to use drugs. And it was like, because it was more accessible in Calgary. And I had just had a friend recently moved to Calgary who works on the rigs. So when he was around, he likes to party. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I like to party. Yeah. And Makes sense. Makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and I just, it was just like my body was deteriorating. I could feel my body getting worse every time I drank and did drugs because mm-hmm. my hangover started to last two days and it was like uncontrollable projectile vomit. Mm-hmm the entire day after like as soon as i stopped using cocaine i was throwing up for 24 to 48 hours after every time i do cocaine so it's almost like i have an actual addiction or an actual allergy allergy, right because like my body rejects it my body doesn't want it Mm -hmm. i have three beer and my body is trying to reject it yeah so um isn't that strange too when you think back about it about actually having like a legit allergy to these chemicals. Yeah. And it sparks it. And yeah. I just, I continue to put my body through that. And that's mm-hmm. the insanity of it, right? We yeah. continue to do this, hoping, to, like expecting different results. And no, every time I drink, I'm going to get horrendously sick. And mm-hmm. it's just not worth it. Um, but so after... Um, after partying away a lot of my mom's money because my mom was helping me out pay my bills and everything and um, for a little while there I was just taking the money and not paying my bills mm-hmm. um, and then I, I'm i pretty sure she was on to me <laughs> like I, I'm pretty sure because yeah. towards the end she was like really yeah. And I'm like, yeah, they're going to come out tomorrow. <laughs> and I would like go pull the money that night. Um, and so she was like, I think you need to find a job. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, you're right. I'll find a job. And I looked around Calgary and my background is in event management. So I was trying to find something in that aspect and mm-hmm. I couldn't really find anything um and then i applied to uh amazon the warehouse out in balzac um i got hired on there and then 
I got a promotion uh, within the first month of being there. And then um, everything was going really good. And I was keeping my drinking and drugging monitored. And I was also making a lot more money than I had ever made before, right? Like I was not used to full 40-hour work weeks minimum Mm -hmm. at $17 an hour. So it was like intense Mm -hmm. that's quite a jump right it was a really big jump yeah um so i had all this extra money and i got myself a new car i got a new car and i was so proud of myself and all of these accomplishments that i was making and because i had moved to calgary and i was like oh it was just the town that was fucking me up right Mm -hmm. fuck bonnieville you know they don't know anything and it wasn't, you know, not not before long. I'm calling my supervisor and I'm making excuses as to why I'm not at work or why I need to leave early or why I'm going to be late. I was always late on Wednesdays, so I worked Wednesday to Saturday. And Wednesday coming to work, sometimes I would be late and I would be like, oh, well, I'm at the doctor or my back hurts or some just some bullshit excuse, right, just to get up, just to... Give myself a couple extra time, like a little bit more time to recover, mm-hmm. not be so hungover going in. Um, and then Saturdays, I would, oh, I'm not feeling good. I'm going to go home early. Mm-hmm. And I would just fuck off right from there. Um, I started to distance myself from some friends in Calgary because, like, when I drink, right, I'm mean. So I'm thinking that they're the problem when really it's me and I just can't have a good time. I can't play nice with others. And so I started to drift from those friends and start to kind of go back into my Bonneville friends. So the Bonneville friends that are super into drugs so much so that they sell them, right? Um... And I have quite a few friends in town that do that. And it wasn't hard for me to call someone up and be like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Okay, well, I'm going to come drive up. And I'm going to come and we'll party. Um, And I was making that trip every week. I put so many kilometers on my car. When I first got that car, it was at 55,000. Right now it's at 106,000. Wow. And... It's all from trips up north. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to, like, as I started to progress into, like, worse drugs, right? Like, I wasn't just doing cocaine anymore. I was smoking crack with my cocaine. Or I was smoking meth with my cocaine. And I was, like, drinking G. And it's just, it, it's all over the place, right? And I don't mean to drug log. It's just nope. looking back and everything and just realizing how scary Mm -hmm. it got right like just the amount of situations that i put myself in that i shouldn't have just because i was trying to get high Mm -hmm. or trying to get drunk um well and that's the key right that's what you're talking about i mean people can obviously think it's a drunk log but i don't get that impression yeah and it's it's you gotta tell your story right yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) um And 
So it was right around May long weekend. Um, two days before May long weekend last year, 2019. Um, I got a phone call from the cops in my hometown saying that they have no more leads on my sexual assault case. Mm. And I'm like, okay, this is from 2017. Why are you still calling me? But I understand, right? Um, But that was very triggering for me. Mm -hmm. And I just got so inside my head. Um, You know, and doubting myself. Mm -hmm. You know, convincing myself that I'm not worth it. And convincing myself that my my family and my friends would be okay if I killed myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So May long weekend, I tried to overdose. And I obviously was unsuccessful or successful, depending on how you look at it, right? <laughs> I was just going to say, thank you, creator. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever, whether successful or unsuccessful, thank you, creator. Yeah, thanks for, you know, making sure that didn't pan out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I came back to uh, Calgary because I had to go to work and I was just pissed off and I was like, I wasn't supposed to be mm-hmm. here. Here. This isn't supposed to, this isn't what I had planned. So I went to work and my coworker could tell that I was like really off. And I thought that I could confide in him. Um, So I went into one of the rooms at work and I kind of told him what was going on. Um, I told him, you know, that I tried to overdose over the weekend and that I'm feeling suicidal. And I was like, you know, I'd appreciate it if you kind of just kept this between us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I understand from his point of view, if somebody comes and tells you that they're suicidal, you're going to try and help them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he told my supervisor, my supervisor told my manager, and my manager told HR. And then I was in the office at work waiting for the paramedics to come get me. Um, they brought me to uh, Peter Lougheed first, um, but there was no room there, so they sent me to Rocky View. And I was in Rocky View for a little while. Um, And then I checked out against medical advice. Um, I kind of, it was my first time ever being told about addiction and you know, how every bad thing that's happened to me in my life is my fault, right? Mm. (laughs) That was the first time anybody had ever told me anything like that. And I'm like, how dare you talk to me like that? Mm. Do you know who I am? No, I don't have an addiction. I'm not, I don't have a drinking problem. Mm. I don't have a drugging problem. My problem is my mental health. Mm -hmm. And I was like, can we deal with that? And she was like, we have to deal with the addiction first. And I was like, no, I don't have an addiction. And I left. And then it was like a week later and I'm thinking, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to go to treatment, Mm -hmm. um, go to, um, like kind of a culturally sensitive treatment. So, Mm -hmm. um, I actually went to Sunrise 
And oh my god, that's such a beautiful place. Yeah. It's amazing there. Like the counselors are great. Like when I first went in, I obviously had hostilities and I was mm-hmm. like, you can't tell me what to do. But like looking back on it, they're great. They're all amazing, tremendous people and their hearts in it, you know. Yeah. So that's always really good to see. Um so I went into treatment and actually I checked my Facebook this morning on my Facebook memories and last year today my sister and her girlfriend were, oh, we're going to the zoo. And my mom and dad were, oh, we're going to Canmore. And I'm like, that's great. I'm going to rehab. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, I was in treatment around this time. (laughs) That was my day, right? Um, (laughs) I went to Sunrise and I tried to do the inpatient treatment. Um, That takes an incredible amount of strength for people to do that Mm -hmm. I was not able to do that I failed with my mental health and you know I became suicidal in there and I told them what was happening and they sent me back to the hospital Mm -hmm. and I'm in the psych ward again and um and I'm just really I'm starting to think that I don't want to die. I just don't want to live in this situation anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. Like there's like it's crippling depression. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I uh, depression is crippling. Oh, yeah. And like I'm on medication for it now, but. Mm before when I wasn't like I understand why some days I just stayed in bed yeah and you're so sluggish and so drained and people are you're cut off you're not because it's hard to explain it when you're cut off right exactly I'm medicated for it too yeah yeah um such a heavy thing yeah um so after I talked to the doctor in there, and he's like, we'll give you some mirtazapine. And I'm like, okay, but this is just going to help me sleep. I'm still really flustered, right? Mm. Um, So we went home, and uh, I was talking to Sunrise, and I left the inpatient program, and I was going to go back to do the outpatient, but Mm. I had to wait that 30 days, right? Um, (coughs) I'm sorry. Oh, please. So I went back for the outpatient and, you know, while I was there, I really embraced my culture, Mm -hmm. especially after going so long, like being ridiculed about being native Mm -hmm. um, in elementary, middle school, high school, until I met those older kids, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I was always very timid about being native, right? Like we're... That's part of the colonization of it, right? Like, we're we're supposed to be ashamed of who we are. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to hate our skin. It's built into the plan. It's built in, right? Yeah. That's what we're taught. Yeah. And if we have problems, we don't talk about them. You sweep them under mm-hmm. the rug. Man up. The <coughs> learning a little bit about um, one of my counselor's history in residential schools 
allowed me to kind of look at residential schools through my grandmother's eyes in a different way, in my mm. cookum's eyes. Um, you know, it it was basically, it, it was made to destroy the Indian. Mm. So for- Every him, part of, every part of the indigenous. Every yeah. part from like our language. Mm. I don't know my language. I don't know my culture. I don't know enough of who I'm supposed to be to even remotely try and tell you who I'm supposed to be, right? Like, I know that I'm Cree, but that's it. I don't, I lost, my grandmother lost everything, so she didn't get to pass it on to my mom, and my mom didn't get to pass it on to me. Um, and you see that, that effect from residential schools and trying to destroy the family dynamic mm -hmm. that was the whole purpose right like yeah. you you destroy the family dynamic you make abuse okay mm -hmm. you know um and you turn what you are and what you are naturally into the enemy mm -hmm. right the enemy for the self even right yeah yeah and like it was really frustrating coming into a treatment center that practiced native culture you know smudging in the mornings mm -hmm. and teaching using the medicine wheel and it stirred up this bitterness in me mm -hmm. and i was like so for years you told us we couldn't do this and now you use it as a medicinal technique to get mm -hmm. rid of your addiction you use it as help when we've been trying to help you since the beginning mm -hmm. and it caused me to get a lot of resentments towards um, and it's not all white people. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely not all white people. I don't take offense to it, though. Hey, Kay. like I don't. I don't take offense to that. Like, there's, like, there's a lot more going on than just my feelings. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was, it was hard because I met people in recovery who openly admitted to being racist before mm. who now use my tradition like my traditional mm -hmm. and my culture right after being so degrading towards us mm -hmm. and it just i still i still struggle with that just a little bit right because mm -hmm. For years, we were told not to do any of this, and now you want some of it. I've never heard it described like that. Hey, like you're, you're like, my brain's kind of working because I've never heard that described. Yeah. In that way, and it just like it makes a, it makes a lot of sense why there'd be anger. Yeah. Right. Because my cookum wasn't allowed to do this. Yeah. My cookum every night when she goes to bed, she play, she prays on her rosary, mm. because that was drilled into her mind. In the residential schools, right? Mm. Like, and the physical and emotional and mental abuse that must have been that she had to endure, right? Yeah, it's yeah. She she told me about having to wake up in the middle of the night to walk across a field in the middle of the night in the winter to bring a nun to aspirin, mm. and you know she's like six. Mm. And I just, it brings up a lot of emotions. Mm -hmm. um, 
and then you get into that intergenerational trauma and a lot of people are some people are trying to brush it off right Mm -hmm. like oh intergenerational trauma doesn't exist you guys you need to get over it but they looked at the dna of holocaust survivors and proved Mm -hmm. that it's in there it's proven genetically proven. proven yeah but you know i've met psychiatrists who are you know i try to explain that i have intergenerational trauma and you know i don't have a concrete family dynamic like we're rebuilding our family mm-hmm. dynamic every day as we learn more about our culture mm-hmm. and more about tools that i found in recovery right um we still don't have that advancement of knowing it from the beginning mm-hmm. we don't We don't have, we didn't get those advancements. Mm -hmm. And some people that I've come into contact with, they're like, oh, well, why don't you just work hard? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I do work hard. I work my ass off when I, when I Mm -hmm. work, you know, like that's, it's part of me. It's what I do. What those people don't understand is that for you to get what they might have, you have to work four times as hard. Exactly. It's not just handed to me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I actually recently seen this thing. And it was about a black woman buying her first home, mm-hmm. trying to buy her first home. And the loan or the bank was like, well, you don't have a family friend or family member that can just lend you $50,000. Those aren't uncommon. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, <laughs> that's really. that advancement, right? Yeah. Like that's that upper hand that you got. Mm-hmm. Like while your grandfather had farmlands. Mm. My cookum was in residential school. My cookum was forced out of her home into residential school. Mm. I don't have the one up that you do. Mm. I don't have businesses being handed down generation and generation. Mm. If anything, I'll be lucky I make a business myself and hand it down to my kids. Mm. And that's part of my journey, right? Like it's part of what I have to continue to strive for and continue to mm stay on this road in recovery because if I, you know, if I give up and I just go back to Mm. drinking, I'm not helping anybody. Mm. I'm hurting more people than I could imagine. And I'm not helping anybody. And like by nature, I'm helpful. I want to help people. I want to make people's lives easier. Um, like being in recovery i'm starting to find more opportunities that i can volunteer for Mm -hmm. more things that i can build my network um i sent out just an email just to see what was out there Mm -hmm. and i got an interview back like people called me and they were like we haven't seen your resume but we want you we want you to come in Mm um so i like i I get these opportunities and if I just keep taking those little steps, Mm. like creator's not expecting me to take leaps and bounds right out the gate, right? He just wants Mm. me to just take little baby steps as much as I can handle. And he's never going to give me anything that I can't. Mm. Um, I find like just life in general in recovery is 
amazing, you know, like when I was in treatment and I was learning about the steps and the traditions and going to meetings and um, attending workshops and stuff, I started to really see a purpose mm. in my own life, right? Because, you know, there might be another, you know, young Indigenous woman suffering from a similar situation that I have. Mm. Um, now, granted, sometimes it's like CFS coming in, but yeah. still, you know, I can be... Mm-hmm life gets better yeah. you know I can be a help to somebody and really that's that's kind of all I want to do now is I just be selfless mm-hmm. you know and before I was like what can I get out of this and now it's like <laughs> I don't I don't even somebody's gonna get something out of this and mm-hmm. it's not gonna be me you know mm-hmm. it's recovery has a knack of doing that to people eh? I know right yeah. and I tell people I'm like it's great out here you should try it and they're like some of them will scoff and mm-hmm. it can't be that easy you can't just read a book and your problems go nobody said I'm it was like, fucking easy nobody said it's easy oh god <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was gonna quit smoking but then I like came into recovery and I'm like you know what I'm gonna need one vice yeah one thing at a time yeah. Yeah. One thing at a time. It's what they told sure. me. First things first, Dave. Because I, I, I worried, worried about that. So I continued to smoke for the first 10 years of my recovery. Okay. <laughs> right? But it was honestly, first things first. Yeah. I quit booze and morphine at the same time. I was enmeshed in all kinds of my other behaviors that mm-hmm. were obviously dangerous and problematic, right? It just wasn't the using anymore. So, of course, like, yeah. I don't want. I don't want to. I want to get away from that. Yeah. Right. You don't want to keep going back and. Gosh, I don't even know what we're talking about. Quitting oh, quitting smoking. Thank you. He has to do this all the time, eh? Yeah. I have this. I have like serious something. I mean, later in my life, they'll probably tell me it's a tumor, but like right now, I don't know that. Um, <laughs> it's not a tumor. Um, but yeah, but quitting smoking—it's so fucking hard. Mm-hmm. 10 years and I, I I tried a few times legitimately. Yeah. And just couldn't get it. No, it's it's hard and like that's uh I've been smoking for 15 years now. Yeah. So I'm like I think I better stop. I've I've started to develop to develop a uh, chronic night cough. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate for everybody in the house cuz everybody hears me mm-hmm. and when my grandma first started to hear it Unfortunately, it started to come out right around the time that they were telling people that there's a new coronavirus. And she's like, where did you go? (laughs) What did you do? Why are you sick? Yeah. And I'm like, why do you have the vid? Right? (laughs) The vid. (laughs) You got the COVID. No, no, I got the no vid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but it would have been really scary for her. Like, I don't know how old your grandmother is, but... That's like those. My folks were scared because they're over seventy-five. Like, mm-hmm. or in, they're almost seventy-five. I said they're over seventy-five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a dead man. <laughs> yeah, she's she's seventy-two. Mm-hmm. So I can understand, right? Yeah. But, but like, uh, you know, to develop that chronic cough mm-hmm. and. 
um, I actually recently went to go see my doctor about my nose because mm. when I was using drugs, my nose would have flare-ups mm-hmm. and I would get like... Your sinuses, hey? No. Uh, like the inside of my nose would go raw. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, kind of like where my septum is, mm-hmm. but uh, it would go raw when I was using. Yeah. And then I hadn't touched cocaine in so long. And all of a sudden, my nose was starting to do that. So I oh. went to my doctor and I was like, hey, what's going on here? Yeah. And um, he's like, yeah, no, prolonged use does that. And I'm like, good to know. Thanks. They should yeah. put these on the D.A.R.E. pamphlets in yeah. grade five. No doubt. That even after you stop using it, you know, it's still going to mess your body up. You can still be damaged. Yeah. Irreparable damage, right? Yeah. Um, and so... Like just being able to see the toxins that I put into my body and see mm-hmm. the harsh effects of them now. And yeah. as my body gets older and I start to age, it starts to take its toll. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been on the 20th, actually, it'll be four months. Nice. But prior to my relapse before that, I had eight months. So mm-hmm. I've been in recovery since May 2019. Um and, you know, like, the past year, I've been able to restore relationships with my family, mm-hmm. you know, develop a sense of trust mm-hmm. with my parents again. Because before, it was yeah. it was ridiculous, you know. Like, they wouldn't go anywhere. They wouldn't do anything because they were so worried about what I would do while they were away. Yeah. Um, they, they take trips now. They go places now. Yeah. You know, they're not afraid to leave me alone. Um, You know, my little sister is a really big part of my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have friends in recovery. I've got, you know, relationships with family members that I've had to cut ties with. Mm -hmm. And then family members that I've found along the way. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, well, we have this in common, you know. And, um, you know, this year I actually got to experience my first sober Christmas holidays. So, like, if I wasn't drinking on Christmas Day, I'd be drinking New Year's and mm-hmm. every other day in between. Yeah. But this year I actually it was, I was sober the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandparents came down from Edmonton, my, my dad's mom and dad. They came down, and I got to experience that with them, and it was really nice. Um, my grandfather actually just passed away two months ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it it came out of nowhere, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. it was really hard. It was hard to do the funeral during COVID times because mm-hmm. we couldn't really gather yeah. too much, right? Like, there was only 50 people allowed in at a time, and mm-hmm. we had to make sure the flow was going. And, um, you know, I, being at the funeral and watching the slideshow and seeing all these pictures of my grandfather, um, I got to see it through a different set of eyes, you know, I got Mm -hmm. to see it through how, how much he would have enjoyed it, you know, um, because my grandfather used to drink. 
like a lot, really heavily. And he was mean, apparently. I don't, I was, I was young. It was like 2004. Mm-hmm. November 4th, 2004 is this queen date. And, um, you know, I got to see all of the things that he got to experience in recovery and sobriety. Mm-hmm. And to, and when they came down for Christmas, we had that conversation because he seen my big book mm-hmm. and he was like, oh, the Bible thumpers. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, they came, they helped me. They're really good people, you yeah. know, and we kind of had that connection in that mm-hmm. way. And I hadn't really had a, I hadn't really developed a connection with my dad's side of the family prior. Um, so it was just really nice to have that moment and share that moment mm-hmm. and you know, he understood what I was going through at that time. Yeah. And, and, you know, he was really proud of me. And, you know, being at the funeral, I got to see how he experienced life after he quit drinking, right? Mm -hmm. Like his family came back into his life and he got to experience grandchildren and he got to experience great grandchildren. And, you know, him and my grandma got remarried. Oh, wow. And, you know, all of these beautiful things towards mm-hmm. the end of his life, right? And I just, I got to see that as a gift of recovery for mm-hmm. him, right? Like, had he not gotten sober, he wouldn't have had that long of a life with us. Yeah. But he did, and and that kind of, that's been helping me a lot lately, is to know that, you know, later on in life, I'm going to be really happy. Mm. And like the pictures that I was seeing of like when he started to get sober, his smile got bigger. Yeah, you could see the change. eh? You could see the change. You could see the change for sure. Um, But that just kind of reinstalls it every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I keep, I keep his chips on my, on my top stand where my TV goes. So I see them every morning. Cool. And easy does it. The the chip says easy does it. Mm -hmm. And it's got his name on it. And it's clean date. And every morning, you know, I just, I remember that. Mm -hmm. And I try to envision, like manifest a better life, you know. Like, help me be my best self so that you can give me everything I've ever needed. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not needing anything else, right? Like, God's everything. God's mm-hmm. God literally is everything or he's nothing, mm-hmm. right? It's true. He's got to be everything. And yeah. I can see how God's worked in my life this past year. And the people he's brought into my life and the people that I have to remind myself I asked him to remove, mm-hmm. right? A lot of... A lot of really good experiences, sober experiences. Mm. I remember the last year, you know, like I don't have mm. to, what happened here? Yeah. I remember the last year. And I'm just so grateful mm-hmm. that every day I get to wake up and I'm waking up, you know. God. Like literally and figuratively. Right? Yeah. And it's, it's just amazing. I just, I have no need for it anymore Mm -hmm. i found happiness out here yeah 
and that's it's more than I could ever ask for. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm really grateful you're back. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and that you're okay, right? Because you and I both know it, it, not guaranteed. No, it's not. Yeah, we're not guaranteed a trip back in. So No, we're really not. You know. And I'm really glad that yeah. it didn't last long and I didn't end up where I thought that I could have gone. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so, eh? Oh, yeah. Because we can, we can easily imagine the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like when I went out on my last relapse, I actually got an impaired, not an impaired, I was sleeping in my vehicle. Mm-hmm. So it's like an impaired, yeah. but I still lost my license. So I'm like, that's it. I've, yeah. I know that it's going to get much worse mm-hmm. every time I go back out. Yeah. So I just, there's nothing out there for me. Mm-hmm. Everything. Es- especially when you can see that escalation, eh? Oh, of each time you pick up. Oh. <sighs> Every time mm-hmm. it's and it's right back to where you were. Yeah, it's not even gradually easing into it. It's zero to a hundred. Yeah, and it's fucking bananas how it works. It's <laughs> yeah, it is. It's crazy. It's like instant crazy juice. And like people, we're losing so many people right now. Mm-hmm. People are going back out, and yeah. like it has to do with you know being on your own. Mm-hmm. A lot of people aren't used to being on your own. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that some people are relapsing. And I mean, I think that kind of trickles down to broken sponsorship, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're not... We should... I I feel like we should want them to recover as much as they want to recover. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times when sponsees relapse we kind of only reach out the once in a while right Mm -hmm. and you don't really think about all of the shame that they're going through Mm -hmm. because they're literally thinking that they're the worst person in the world Mm -hmm. i am the worst person in the world i ruined all of my service positions i ruined all of my friendships in the rooms Mm -hmm. i'm a piece of shit i don't deserve to go back into the recovery Mm -hmm. rooms and i tricked myself into thinking that so it was really hard for me to go back into the mm-hmm. rooms after I relapsed the first time. So it was just so much easier for me to stay out. Yeah. Um, but then I lost my license and I was like, there's going to be more. Mm-hmm. It's like it doesn't just stop here. It's yeah. this rabbit hole keeps going. Yeah, it's a pretty deep fucking hole too. Fucking right. Yeah. And like, you know, a lot of people don't make it out. Yeah. So I'm really glad that. Creator's got a plan for me, and mm-hmm. he's showing me that it needs to happen this way. Yeah. And if I just let him do it, he'll do it. One day at a time. One day at a time. Yeah. yeah. That's so uh, so interesting about your grandpa, because the day I sobered up was the very day that my grandpa passed away. Oh, really? Like I, yeah, and I didn't even know it, like for the first couple of years of sobriety. Oh. I didn't realize it was the same day. Oh. And so a couple of years into sobriety... We were out doing um, a family, re- uh, my grandma's birthday. She was still alive. So we went out to see my grandma in Saskatchewan. And we went to visit my grandpa's grave. And of course, I think I was like two years or two and a half years sober at that point. And um, I saw the date and I just like broke down crying. And I was like, holy crap, like August 22nd, 2004. That's the first sober day I had. Yeah. It was like, it was a weird 
but of course I believe in all that stuff like yeah. the unseen right yeah. so it was it wasn't like a, it was overwhelming because I do believe in that like I it was almost like he gave his life for though I could have some yeah right like, yeah wow because I don't I didn't deserve another chance mm-hmm. that's for sure I didn't deserve it any more than anybody else does right and for some reason I got it yeah. you know and it I can't forget it now of course like yeah. which is fantastic yeah I think it's nice to have those memories of of part of our family that that's that impact us in that positive way right like yeah. that the the wanting to get sober keeping your grandpa's chips on the on the night on the tv stand yeah you know it's just that daily reminder you know yeah. and, and it's about wanting to make them proud right like so mm. my mom's dad uh passed away in 2007 mm. and then my grandfather my dad's dad just passed away two months ago yeah and you know my son and it's just Every day now, I try to remind myself that they're watching me. Mm-hmm. You know, make good choices, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Live a good life so that they're not up there wondering what the hell you're doing. You know, mm-hmm. they keep throwing you these passes, but mm-hmm. you're not catching them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and just to remind myself that, you know, they're they're looking out for me. Mm-hmm. I strongly believe that they're watching me. Yeah. And they're gonna protect me so long mm-hmm. as I keep doing what I'm doing, and I live in the life. I I live a way that Creator wants me to live, mm-hmm. that's positive in other people's lives, and that I'm not mean to people. You know, because mm-hmm. I don't want to be mean anymore. I have like we were talking about this before you got here, Darcy and I, about sometimes it's really hard to believe someone's pre-sobering stories. Like, because you can't match the person that we see yeah. with the person that was there. Yeah. Like, literally, I'm having that moment. I'm like, no, you're mean. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong. I know how mean people can get when they go from sober to drunk. Because I obviously was a, one of them, too. But that is so hard for me to imagine. Oh, yeah. No, I was horrible. I would steal husbands, steal mm. cars. And I was just mean, mm-hmm. really mean and manipulative and just, I probably should have got my ass kicked a lot more times than I did for, mm-hmm. you know, what a shit I was. Mm-hmm. <gasps> and I, I, I really should have had just, you know, silver mm-hmm. platter, my ass. Here you go, Taylor. <laughs> but it just, you know, yeah. I, I'm glad that. I've moved past that, mm-hmm. and I have a new outlook on life, and I can understand why things are the way mm-hmm. they are, and that it has absolutely nothing to do with me. Yeah. Nothing I say or do is going to impact the way somebody else does something mm-hmm. at all. I don't have that power. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I thought I did, so I would try to manipulate people and lie and cheat and steal. Mm-hmm. I just can't see myself going back to that life anymore. I don't blame you for not wanting to. It's so complicated. Like, sure. seriously, all the lies and trying to pay attention to all the shit that we've put out there, like... Everything. And it's it too all, complicated. It is, and then you got to remember everything, right? Exactly. So when I came into recovery and I started telling my sponsor my story, I was like, 
All right, cool. Now I don't have to remember any of the other bullshit I told people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I remember being in grade four and telling these girls that we were going to Disneyland for my birthday, and my parents were gonna each give them give them each a credit card and just dumb shit, mm-hmm. right? Stuff the kids do, yeah. Stuff that kids do, right? But I carried that on into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, you turned it into an art form, Taylor. That's what. Oh you did. yeah, that's what I did. Very <laughs> subtle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to slightly get my way here and here and here. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I can't imagine any other way to live my life now. Mm. And about reconnecting and digging into culture, like are you able to do that now with your grandmother and your parents and stuff? Like is that something that's open? You guys talk about it openly or is it still difficult to talk about? Um. So my mom and dad are very into their culture. My dad is mm. Métis and my mom is uh, Bilsi, so she's Greek. Mm. Um, but everywhere in their house, you know, there's beaded things and pictures and medicines and drums mm. and a whole bunch of stuff. It's just a very, it feels like a very traditional, safe household. Mm. So it's been easy to um, reintegrate myself that way. Mm. Um, I'm not on home territory, so yeah, it's, I would need to learn more of the protocols here, mm-hmm. like in Blackfoot territory, then, then I would be more comfortable maybe going to ceremonies here, but, yeah. um, I kind of want to go back home and maybe stay with my aunt for a little while and just kind of learn from mm-hmm. her because she knows a lot. She goes medicine picking mm-hmm. and she'll pick sweetgrass and sage. Um, she goes to sun dances and mm-hmm. horse dances, ghost dances. And I just, when I start to think about those things, like mm-hmm. there's a little fire inside me that just starts to yeah. really pump because like it excites me to know that I can go back and I can learn about this. Mm-hmm. I just have to go back. Right. Yeah. Um, It's something that I need to do. Like, I feel like it would be very positive for my mm-hmm. reconnection with my spirit. Um, and then just finding my bigger purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Just constantly going to be looking out for those little signs, right? Yeah. Anytime they pop up, those God shots. And I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> that's right. I'm supposed yeah. to be doing this. And, you know, when I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. God will come out in other people yeah. and tell me, what are you doing? You I know, know. And I, I hate it when he does that. Right? I'm like, I didn't ask you. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know who you are, dude. Why are you talking to me? Right. Look, man, you need to hear this. <laughs> yeah. And I'll hear it. Like, yeah. if I don't listen the first time, I'll hear it again from somebody else. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I get it. I'll stop what I'm doing. I'll do this now. Yeah. And I'll just take it easy. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Taylor, thank you so much. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I, I don't, I don't, no, not, I don't think so. No? Cool, that's cool. I, I just, I really appreciate your time and, and your vulnerability. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I just, I'm glad I got to come in finally. Me too. I'm really glad. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like so grateful that you're able to connect, like reconnect to culture, to family, because um, it is just such an important piece, mm-hmm. right, for, for individuals to have some sense that they're not alone. Yeah, some sense of identity. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's, it, it'll get there, but yeah. yeah. 
Well, I'm really grateful, and I appreciate all the stuff you post because um, it helps me learn stuff that I don't know, right? Yeah. Like, I, I, there's some things that you talked about that I just can't imagine, right? And um, doesn't mean I shouldn't try. That just means I can't. So, yeah. like, the idea to learn, keep learning. Um, when you were talking about the mortgages, what popped into my head was, like, there's this... On, on Monday of last week, I, I talked to a gentleman from the Black Coalition to End Racism. And he was telling me that, and I didn't know this, right? Like, I have no idea. Like, I, first of all, I've never gone for a mortgage, so I don't even know what appropriate rates are or anything like that. Yeah. But he says his, the rate they gave him was automatically twice as much as a white man. And he had to have three times the paperwork to get, to get a mortgage. And, I, and he specifically oh. talked about it. And um, I was, I'm blown away by it, right? Because I'm like, how the hell is that legal? Like, that can't be legal. But then, of course, they'll put in the loopholes to make it legal, right? Mm -hmm. So that you're not, like, it's not based on race. No, 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 mm -hmm. no. This is based on this person is from this, this person has that, this person has that. But, like, right off the get-go, there's an imbalance, mm -hmm. right? That people, that people like me, we, don't, we can't recognize because that imbalance doesn't exist for us, Yeah. right? That's why it's so hard for... I think, anyway, one of the reasons why it's so hard for a lot of white people to just simply get out of the way and accept this information, right? We're so, like, not me personally, but some people are so quick to get defensive. Oh, yeah. No, the banks would never do that. And I'm like, did you just defend the bank? Yeah. The same bank who would foreclose on your house in an instant? Mm hmm Right? Like, it's like, why are you defending a bank? Because that symbolizes the white institutions, or yeah. the colonial institutions, whatever. Yeah. Right. And they think like it's it hasn't happened to me, so it doesn't exist, right? And it's just they're like, I don't want to ruin my reputation with the bank, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! I I just honestly, this stuff amazes me that this is legal, that yeah. this shit can happen. It happens. Yeah. All the time. I I I'm just blown away, like more and more by mm -hmm. it, like how. When, when people, it's no wonder we have had such, not we again, but people have had such a hard time with the systemic racism is because it's so, um, what do they call that? Uh, insidious. Mm -hmm. Like it's insidious in everything we do. So no wonder we don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. Because it's literally in almost like many steps we take all day long. Mm -hmm. It's at work, right? And I think that is one of the reasons why it makes it so difficult to just accept that this is happening. First of all, and that's what we all need to do. As far as I'm concerned, all us white folk, we just need to sit back and be like, look, this is the fucking reality. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because we, we cannot, we, we know that indigenous people in North America, but across the globe, right, have been systematically, like, tried to have genocide. Like, whether it be South American indigenous people or indigenous people in Australia mm -hmm. or New Zealand or wherever, or Europe. Wherever, wherever there were and are indigenous populations, right? That it, it's such a interconnected system, right? And I was just simply, and like thinking about a psychiatrist actually suggesting that intergenerational trauma isn't a thing, it just like makes me queasy. Yeah, it, it completely blew me away because I went to go and get assessed by him. Mm -hmm. And he was like, no, you definitely have depression and anxiety. And I'm like, yes, what else is new? And he's like, you have a little bit of BPD. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And he's like, and you're currently seeing a psychologist who specializes in intergenerational trauma. And I'm like, yes. 
and he's like, we don't need you to see her anymore. We don't. I don't really think that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. exists. She yeah. really advocates for it. I think there's other reasons you are the way you are. And I'm like, I can't even talk to you normally without you automatically assuming that you're right because you've never experienced it. Mm-hmm. You're a doctor. Yeah. You're supposed to be helping people. Not only that, you're supposed to be like really smart. Right? <laughs> Like, that would be concerning to me is that this doctor doesn't realize this. Yeah, and just, it's been coming out of the woodwork a lot lately. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that are, you know, it doesn't exist. Like, uh, the, I think it was in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. The main constable for all of Ottawa or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't remember who it was, but she Was it came, the chief constable? Or? Yeah. yeah. She came on and she was saying like, I, oh, for the RCMP. I don't believe there's systemic racism. That's right. Yeah, yeah, RCMP commissioner. And I was just like, of course you don't see it. Why like, would you want to? Why, and why would you even look at it anyway? It, yeah. makes, it would probably make you uncomfortable for mm-hmm. one. And based on what we're hearing, <coughs> if you tried to stand out against it... Mm-hmm. You're probably gonna get fired, you know. Either that or shit can to some post north in northern Manitoba, right? Yeah, somewhere out in the middle of nowhere because you wanted to do your job properly. Yeah. Because these people are just taking advantage of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I watched this documentary on uh, Netflix called 13th. Yeah. So it's about the 13th Amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, basically, the 13th Amendment says slavery is illegal unless you're imprisoned. Mm -hmm. And right after they released that they started imprisoning black people like it was mm-hmm. fucking crazy you look and now at they're pictures, like what's the percentage of black people incarcerated in the states i think it's like 86 or it's something gotta be it's, up there. it's ridiculous i think There's it's like still connected to the 13th right yeah it's still connected yeah. to that and like you look back on these pictures and there's women and just little babies mm. in these fields in these stripes and chained up and for loitering mm. And, you know, all the people that were so against segregation, right? Like, mm-hmm. or um, that wanted to keep segregation. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, blacks and whites don't mingle. Mm-hmm. Those same people that were getting so mad that there was black students coming to the school are the ones that are backing Trump mm-hmm. now, you know? You yeah. see it. And they're the ones that are coming out on their lawn with guns mm-hmm. and... Just doing ridiculous things. Like, nobody is trying to hurt you. Literally You're nobody. You're safe in your palace. Don't yeah. worry. Yeah. We're not turning into the purge out here. It's... Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. No. Right? Taylor and I both excited about the purge. The purge. Darcy getting his video camera. <laughs> um, but, like, just... Yeah, you were saying they're not in danger. They're not. Yeah. We're not trying to threaten you in your way of life. We're mm-hmm. trying to make you see how difficult it is to live in ours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be racially profiled. I get followed around stores all the mm-hmm. time. Um, my mom gets followed around stores. My mom and dad went to go for, I don't remember what it was about, but they went to the bank and... The woman that was going to approve their loan was just totally blown away that they were normal people, but they were native. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you have a job like this? You know, how do you have two vehicles? How do you have nice things? Is that what they asked? Yeah, you're native. 
you're not like a normal native. And I get Jeez. that all the time. You're not like a normal, normal native. And I'm like, what's a normal native? See, that's the shit I would never fucking hear. Nobody would say that around me. It's crazy. And yeah. I get I get that all the time, right? Especially being sober now. Yeah. And people are like, oh, you don't drink, but you're native. Mm. And I'm like, actually, statistically, there's less natives that drink than there are white people. But y'all ain't ready for that conversation yet. No. <laughs> I worked in a liquor store. Let me tell you who our predominant customer base was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's the people with money. Mm-hmm. And predominantly that has been, in North America, white people. Predominantly. Yeah, predominantly, yeah. yes. Obviously. You get the odd ones that have yeah. just struck gold. Mm. But. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with having money, right? Oh, That's yeah. No. The, the, it's, the, it's just the, the class differential mm-hmm. that they have, right, that there is in place that and then, we don't acknowledge. Yeah, and thinking that things don't matter to them, right? Yeah. It doesn't involve them, so why would they care? Yeah, there's no compassion in the world. And and I, I think, and this is maybe we'll end on this because I don't want to drag it on. We're gonna ramble now. I know we could easily <laughs> we could easily talk about. Well, I could talk about this or learn about this all night. Um, but it's just it's so far. Oh, no, I can't remember what I was gonna say. Why do I fucking do the circle and then I'm like, where did I go? <laughs> it's it, it's thank normal. you trauma. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you, intergenerational trauma. Squirrel. Yeah, seriously. But it happens so often, hey. What was I talking about? Did I even I say anything? Yeah, well, and I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what I was going to say. Maybe that's a sign we should end it. It's been perfect. Okay. It has been wonderful having yeah, you. Yeah, it has. And, and speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for letting me come in. Of course, you're welcome. I'll have you back, too. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I'll have more stories about sobriety well, than, I, know, I, than I, I do drinking <laughs> I but I like the fact I, I appreciate it, I should say I shouldn't say I like it it's not about my opinion I appreciate the fact um, that you're willing to talk about it uh, ha- having come back right mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that Taylor because there are so many people struggling with that yeah. with not coming back in because some people don't make it as easy as we could to make it come back in right yeah because um, there is a little bit of shame attached oh so you much you know you mentioned something. Uh, sorry, this is what I was going to say. I was talking about when you mentioned uh, mentioned broken sponsorship. Yeah. Um, it it really is true. Like it's true. Like when I started years ago sponsoring people, way different than now. Mm-hmm. Now it's like I don't care if you drink. I don't care if you go back out. You're still my friend. You call me. We'll talk. Yeah. Right. I don't really have much to say to you if you're drinking or using because you're not going to hear me anyway. Yeah. But if you go out. And, and this is what I appreciate anyway, because it was given to me by, by someone who said, you just do your best, mm-hmm. right? Because not everyone's going to get it today. Some are going to get it tomorrow, some next week, some next month, right? Some in a year. Like, and whenever they get it, that's between them and God. It's got mm-hmm. nothing to do with me, right? When someone said that to me, I was like, oh, my God, that feels so good. Because mm-hmm. I was just like, thank you. I don't have to like, shut people out just because they went drinking. Because I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to. My 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 friends are way too important. Yeah. For that. And like, go ahead. Um. And a lot of the time, like we will use that excuse. Well, I can't hang out with you because it's damaging to my recovery. Mm-hmm. Which I understand. Totally. If it, if it if, is damaging. Yeah. If it's damaging, but if you're claiming to have years mm-hmm. in recovery, 
and you're neglecting somebody for relapsing, yeah, you should probably be looking into what parts of your program you're not working because mm-hmm. it's not really showing that brotherly love, you know, yeah. especially after a relapse when it's hard to come back. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get up into that room and say, you know, Taylor, coming mm-hmm. back. And to get up and go get that one week chip and go get that thirty mm-hmm. day chip and yeah, we put a lot of expectations on people mm-hmm. when they first come into the rooms to be a one and done because yeah. you hear about it in the rooms and you know people thrive for that because they're like oh I'm in recovery and then their ego mm-hmm. takes hold and yeah. then they're like I'm gonna be a one and done and they get it instilled in their head that mm-hmm. they don't have to do any of the work anymore because they've done it all yeah and not fully realizing that it's it's an everyday program mm-hmm. right like you have to do this every day or you're gonna go back out mm-hmm. um you know we just i feel like there needs to be more acceptance when it comes to that mm-hmm. and you know to maybe look at it from their perspective yeah how many times would it take someone reaching out to you before you finally said, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm ready to talk now? Yeah. Because we all have our own issues. Mm-hmm. Some people, when I first relapsed, talked to me like twice and then I haven't heard from them since, mm-hmm. right? They wrote on my birthday wall, like they wrote on my wall for my birthday, but since my relapse, I haven't really mm-hmm. heard from a whole lot of people. Um, and that's kind of toxic to mm-hmm. people that are relapsing you know it's definitely toxic if if people are saying i care about you and then not like at least just saying how are you Mm -hmm. right like again like i don't think that i can stop someone from doing anything but the idea to show them that i love them still to me that's what's important to show them that you you don't have to be afraid of me no matter what you do it's fine we're gonna be fine like and 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 in my mind um i because i i needed that like i needed that desperately and, and I usually ask people, like, what do you mean by one and done? What did you try to quit, do to quit before you came to AA? So you're not one and done. Exactly, most right? People, most people are, oh. we got to, and I've heard the story, right? So yeah. I heard the story. <laughs> this was the last stop on the block. Okay, so that means you've had other stops. Mm-hmm. So what did you try before that? So the one and done business, because you could say I was one and done, but not at all, because before I came to AA, I tried psychiatrists, psychologists, social mm-hmm. workers, therapists, um, self-help, um, doing nothing. I tried all kinds of things, right, to quit because yep. I knew I had to stop, but I couldn't until I was ready, right? Yep. So, I, again, my, maybe it's because of my experience, right, where I'm just like, wow, this is not a linear process. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not. We all want it to be because linear makes, um, I'm going to say, colonial colonialists feel good like if there's a starting point and an end point we feel really good about yeah because we can measure it yeah right and you know what's expected that's right but if you go from here taylor to there and then over here and then over there and then back we think something's wrong yeah right it's not the straight path yeah you took your time going around right yeah because you had to yeah you had your your path had or not yours personally but someone else's path had to go there 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 maybe 10 times before it clicks, right? Before it finally clicks. That's yeah, right. everybody learns a different way, right? Yeah. Everybody's got their own demons to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. And we can't take that out on them because they they don't know anything mm-hmm. else, right? Especially 
in early recovery, mm-hmm. I had no idea why I was the way I was. Yeah. And I had no idea why I wanted to lie to go drink still mm-hmm. or why I wanted to go and pick up. Mm-hmm. I just... It was your part of your process. Yeah, it yeah. was part of my learning experience, mm-hmm. right? Like I had to go and relapse so mm-hmm. that I knew that's not that Taylor really that's really mm-hmm. not for you right like that's part of the learning process like even when kids are in school they learn a different way like some of them are totally. physical and some of them you can read it to them and they just understand it right away mm-hmm. everybody learns a different way so I think we need to maybe take that approach to recovery too and sponsorship Absolutely. right because I can't tell you how many times I've fallen asleep reading that goddamn book yeah. <laughs> Seriously, me neither. It's it's kind of boring in the beginning, you know? It's super boring. Are you kidding who me? Who writes like this? <laughs> yeah. Old white guys, that's who writes right? like that. And legitimately, that's who wrote it. Like, like yeah. without, yeah, we're not even lying. Like, two old white guys. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that was another thing that kind of really pissed me off. Because mm-hmm. when the big book was being written, my cooking was in residential school. And, mm-hmm. oh, I was angry. I was like, mm-hmm. hey, fuck you guys. Yeah. Finding God in prayer while yeah, like, doing uh, this thing and claiming to be Christian. But yeah. that's a different story for a different day, I guess. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we can just keep the podcast going because you brought up one of my favorite subjects to bash, Christianity. Oh, God. I know we don't. Okay. We don't have enough time. But yeah, like I'd love to have you back on yeah, or just to have sure. a conversation with you about it because... There's just something about, uh, okay, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I swear. It keeps popping in my head, the whole like Catholic church business. I just want to give them a punch before we close, but I won't. I'm going to choose the path of Gandhi. Peaceful. (laughs) I'm going to be peaceful for a minute. Okay. (laughs) Let him off the hook. No, I'm not going to let him off the hook, but I won't say anything. Did you already stop it? No, I haven't yet. Really? Okay. (laughs) Well, Taylor, thank you. And we'll let Darcy stop it. Okay, no problem. Thanks for <laughs> letting me come in. It was our pleasure. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Please stay tuned every Wednesday as we air another episode. Thank you for your time. And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook under Freedoms Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.